So let's get into the word. Uh, Revelation chapter 22 is where we're at. We're going to split this chapter up and take uh, verses 1 through 7 today. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 7. Flip in your Bible. Should be the last book of your Bible unless you have some crazy Bible. If there's a book after Revelation, we need to talk to you. (laughs) Or navigate on your electronic device so that you can follow along. Or you can just trust that I'm actually reading the Word of God. But I wouldn't recommend that. The topic this morning, John lets us know that in our heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, we will see God's face. And so the title of our message is FaceTime. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for uh, just for today, for being here, for being in fellowship with you and with one another. We want to pause to uh, express that gratitude and also to tremble at the anticipation that you're going to speak to us through your word. The living God speaking to his people through the living word of God by the ministry of the Holy Spirit who's here in our hearts and in this place. And Lord, I pray that if there's a person or two here that are not a believer, they've never given their life to you, they've never had you forgive their sins and uh, they've never been born again, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would listen closely to the promptings of your spirit showing them how they can go from darkness to light and death to life, how they can know Jesus and have the eternity in their heart filled with his presence. Guide and direct us, Lord, as we look at these seven verses. I pray that they would encourage us to be more like you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Satisfaction guaranteed. It's one of the most common expressions out in the marketplace. There's usually a time limit say 30 to 90 days, and there may be other limiting factors. But by and large, we believe we deserve a guarantee of satisfaction with every purchase. Now, God's people have always had a guarantee of spiritual satisfaction. The psalmist declared, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know how you could be more satisfied than that. And then he also said, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. As we take a final look at the new Jerusalem, we'll understand that it will be a place for all eternity of true and total satisfaction. What about right now? Should we be expecting and experiencing true and total satisfaction? Well, hold off on your answer until we take a look at our text. In it, we'll see that one day we will be truly and totally satisfied Until then, we should see ourselves sanctified on our way there. We'll explain that. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus is going to forever satisfy the desires of your heart. And number two, you are able to presently sanctify the desires of your heart. Let's take a look, first of all, at what Jesus is going to do in verses 1 through 5. Whatever happened to heaven, asked Dave Hunt in the 1988 book with that title. In it, he argued, and I quote, the overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament is upon heaven, but this vision has been lost in the church today. The Apostle Paul gave us an inspired quote about longing for heaven. Speaking of dying or living, those two things, he said this, this is from Philippians chapter 1. 
He said, I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul thought it would be far better to depart, meaning to die and to be absent from his body and present with his Lord. Paul wasn't suicidal. He wasn't being negative. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't off his meds. He was expressing what is a basic biblical norm. Our future life in heaven is preferable to our current living on the earth. And as long as we are on the earth, we are here to serve others in the will of God. I want to say that again. Our future life in heaven is preferable to our current living on the earth. And as long as we are on the earth, we are here to serve others in the will of God. Now, we've been looking at our future in heaven. John sees us home in our mansions in that great city. Jesus is away constructing the new Jerusalem. As the revelation comes to its end, John shares one last glimpse. And so verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. An angel has been talking to John and taking him on a guided tour of the new Jerusalem. It comes down from heaven to be over the new earth. It's built mostly from precious metals and jewels. It's huge, not one, but 12 massive pearl gates, and there's a single street of transparent gold running through it. That was all from last week's study. A river runs through it as well, called the pure river of water of life. Now, this river would have triggered a memory for John. He had been in the temple on earth in Jerusalem when Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, Jesus spoke those words on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the fall feast when Israelites were to construct temporary shelters and live in them to commemorate God's bringing them through the wilderness safely and into the promised land. There was a special ritual involving water that was performed each day. For the first seven days of the eight-day feast, the priests would march in procession down many steps with large water jugs on their shoulders, go down to the Pool of Siloam in the Kidron Valley. There they would fill their jugs with water and make a solemn procession back up the steps and into the temple courtyard where thousands of people would be gathered to worship God. As the people sang and worshiped, the priests poured out the water on the pavement. It was a reminder of how God brought water out of the rock when their fathers were complaining of thirst in the wilderness. They remembered how Moses took the rod and struck the rock according to the commandment of God and how life-giving water came gushing out of the rock. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, the priests did not make a procession to the pool of Siloam, nor did they pour out water on the pavement. This was to signify that God had kept his promise to their fathers. He had preserved them in the wilderness. He had brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey, a well-watered land where they no longer needed water to gush miraculously out of a rock. It was on this day, as the people were gathered to worship God, at that moment that Jesus stood and cried to the thousands of worshipers in the courtyard, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, there's a lot going on there. One of the things that's going on is that Jesus is identifying that rock in the Old Testament. He says when Moses struck that rock and was to speak to that rock, 
it represented me, the source of your spiritual life. And in fact, Paul the Apostle will tell us in his writings, when he mentions this episode, he says, that rock was Christ. Don't get me wrong, there was a real rock out of which torrents of water came to water not just the people, but their livestock, millions of people and their livestock. Uh, but Paul says that rock really represented Jesus Christ and his life. Now, John goes on to say in his writing in the Gospel of John that Jesus was also speaking about the Holy Spirit who, when he came, would fill and then flow through Christians like a torrent of spiritual life and power. So we therefore identify rivers of living water with the person and the work of God the Holy Spirit. It's another emblem or symbol of his presence, like the dove that came down from heaven upon Jesus at his baptism. The river flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb lets us know that the Holy Spirit is also enthroned there. He apparently isn't seen the way God the Father and Jesus are, but he is there nonetheless. God the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He's not water any more than he is a dove, but his presence is represented by it. And so God, uh, John sees God dwelling with men. When he sees this throne and sees the Father and the Son and the representation of the Spirit, uh, he sees the culmination of the redemption of the human race as God is dwelling with the human race. And the Feast of Tabernacles portrays just that, God dwelling with or tabernacling with his people. And that's why I'm one who believes that Jesus was probably born during a Feast of Tabernacles. It fits all the facts of his birth story. If you want to get a little bit deeper into that, uh, in our archives online, you can go back to our Christmas study from 2014 or uh, and uh, we did a, a, a big study on the calendar and the feasts of uh, Judaism and how Jesus has fulfilled most of them uh, ex and, and how he will certainly fulfill the rest of them. And so uh, Jesus, probably born during a Feast of Tabernacles, which falls around September on our calendar, he will undoubtedly return in his second coming at that same time of year. Not the rapture, that is an imminent event, but just as Jesus in his first coming fulfilled on the very day several of the feasts, he will certainly fulfill the fall feasts, and that makes his return likely to be a future September during tabernacles on the Jewish calendar because it is God coming again to tabernacle uh, with men. And so verse 2, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. There was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve's test was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They failed and they were then prohibited from eating of the tree of life, lest they live forever in their sin. Banishment from the garden was an act of grace. It gave time for God to work through human history to redeem and restore all that our first parents lost. People wonder why it's taken so long for God to do anything about the human condition. Read the Bible. It's, God is right on schedule. This is how long it takes to redeem a ruined universe that has human beings in it. We're not easy to deal with, as it turns out. 
And so God, right from the beginning, right in the Garden of Eden, said, I'm going to fix this. I have a plan. I'm going to come myself, the seed of the woman. I'm going to crush the devil's head while he bruises my heel, speaking of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then as you read the story through the patriarchs and the nation of Israel and the church and all, this is the way God is doing it. If it could be done any quicker, any better, in any other way, he'd do it. This is the plan. Banishment from the garden was therefore an act of grace. Now, what kind of tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Genesis doesn't say, but it doesn't ever anywhere in the book mention apples. I read that early Christian scholars often took the forbidden fruit to be an apple because of a pun suggested by the Latin word malum, which can mean both apple and evil. At least one early Latin translation of the Bible uses apple instead of fruit. A contributing factor, no doubt, was that apples were a lot more popular in Europe, where Latin was spoken, than in the Middle East. Best guess as to what kind of fruit it was is the fig. Immediately after eating it and seeing their nakedness, they sewed fig leaves together. Easier to do if you're eating figs, because you're right there. You don't have to find another, you know, it's not like you're at the apple tree saying, these leaves aren't going to sew together very well. We need fig leaves. Where, where was that fig tree, honey? Uh, so it's just a guess, but I think it's a fig. So next time you're eating a fig Newton, uh, think about that thing. Maybe we should call them fig Eves, fig Adams, fig Adams. I like that. Uh, the tree of life flourishes in the New Jerusalem, but is it one tree or is it several? From the description of its relationship to the river and the street of gold, at least for me, it's hard to picture. And some other scholars suggest that it's a row of trees on either side of the uh, river. I've got to think it's the same tree that was in the garden. Not just any old tree of life from a tree of life orchard or from a nursery, but the tree of life preserved these many centuries to be replanted in the fresh new soil of the new Jerusalem. Will we eat in heaven? Will we need to eat? Man, you guys have so many questions today. <laughs> the best answer is that we can eat, but we won't have to. In his resurrection body, Jesus several times enjoyed food. The heavenly visitors ate with Abraham in the Old Testament. The great heavenly reunion between Jesus and his people is described as a literal marriage supper. Jesus said he wouldn't drink wine again until he did so with us in heaven. So we know that Jesus uh, and supernatural beings could both eat and drink. At the same time, it doesn't seem as though it could be heaven if we had to eat to sustain life. Can you imagine saying, yeah, I'm going to die if I don't get to in and out I mean, that's probably not going to happen. They're, those words aren't going to be spoken. By the way, I'm a little distracted. I know my wife is texting me saying she thinks it was a pomegranate. Uh, but thank you, honey. Hi. Hi, Pam. We said last week that the nations on the eternal earth will be saved Gentiles who are not members of the church. The Bible distinguishes between groups of people. Doesn't? not prejudice, not bias, just dis distinguishing. So there are Jews, ethnic descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. And then there is the church, 
people who are saved between the day of Pentecost and the rapture of the church. And then after that happens, after the church is resurrected and raptured, there are no more members of the church. That is a completed group. But that leaves multiplied billions of Gentiles from the tribulation and the millennium who get saved. What happens to these guys in eternity is that they will populate the new earth and they will do so in nations with kings over them. Uh, and again, they're not second-class citizens. They just came to the Lord at a different time in a different dispensation, and that is going to be their eternal abode. Why do the nations need leaves for healing? The word can be translated health-giving. The leaves promote the enjoyment of life. They are not for ills and sicknesses. One thing to note, too, is the mention of months. It fascinates me that we will still measure or at least note the passing of time. I tend to think of eternity as some kind of endless now, as somehow not involved with time at all. This just shows how limited I am in understanding these things. And so verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. From the sin of Adam and Eve until now and up until eternity, the universe as we know it is under the curse. Sin brought death and the whole earth groans waiting for its redemption. John was letting us know that all of that will be finished. It'll be done. God will dwell among us in perfect fellowship. Does it bother you to be called a servant in heaven? It shouldn't because the nature of God is to serve. Jesus said he came to serve, not to be served. And it wasn't a temporary departure from his regular attitude. Jesus remains a servant today. For example, the Bible says he always is praying for you. And so he's serving both you and his father through intercessory prayer constantly. We're to serve now and that won't change in heaven except for one thing, we're going to enjoy serving with no bad attitudes about it. It's just hard as a human being to not have a bad attitude every now and then. It seems like whenever an opportunity comes up to serve, it's at the wrong time. I mean, let's face it. It's when you're not ready to serve. And then when you're bummed because when you're ready to serve, there's nothing to do. Uh, and so we will be servants in the truest sense with right hearts. Verse four, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. We'll all see his face means we'll all have immediate access to God in eternity. How can billions and billions of saints see his face all the time? Man, your questions are killing me. There's a lot about heaven we're simply not told. Uh, we just know that it's true. His name shall be on our foreheads. You've got to take that literally. As futurists who believe in the literalness of the revelation, we take texts literally unless we are told they are figures or types or similes or metaphors. There are those things in the book of the Revelation, but when they are, when they are there, we're told they're there. Otherwise, we take things literally. We can't pick and choose what we think is literal and what we think is figurative. If seeing his face is literal, so is having his name on our foreheads. Now, today we approximate this with those we love in different ways. For example, we uh, usually have matched wedding set. If you're married, you have a, a, a set of rings. Typically, they're, they match so that if they're next to each other, there's some, uh, you know, correspondence between the two. And so it's a kind of way of saying that you love each other and belong to each other. Some kind of, there's other kinds of jewelry where maybe you have half of the heart and I have half of the heart and we put it together when we're together and it says something. 
or, you know, something like that. And there are people who have tattoos, literally, that match or that go together. You might want to wait till you've been together for a while to get somebody's name tattooed on you, just as a practical thing, or go in with a design that can easily be covered up. Uh, <laughs> might wait a while. Uh, consult with me about that if, if you want some tattoo consult. But uh, so now we normally think tattoo, you think some gang tattoo is going to be on your head in eternity, you know, and with, and oh, I don't even know if it's going to be visible to other people, but God says this is going to be on your forehead and it is a term of endearment and a, uh, it, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a loving thing. Verse five, there should be no night there. They need no lamp or light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Pardon the pun, but in the new Jerusalem, there will be no nightlife. It's always light. We don't get that because we need day-night cycles to function. People get weird in places where there's always light or always dark certain times of the year. Sleep deprivation is a serious threat to mental and physical health. Our glorified bodies are going to be much different, much improved. We won't need sleep. And really, who would want to sleep if you could be with Jesus instead? When you're dating, you go without rest and sleep to be with the one you love. In eternity, you're going to want to enjoy every moment of that FaceTime with God. Now, we've seen the light before, but now it's from inside the New Jerusalem at its very source. We're going to reign forever and ever. We'll reign as servants we don't normally think of those two words together, but we should. As I mentioned earlier, it is the nature of God to serve as he reigns over his creation. You can serve and not be a servant. You can't be a servant and not serve. Just serving, just doing something doesn't make you God's servant. There is an attitude behind the activity. It's the mind of Jesus who humbled himself to serve his father and us as God in human flesh, and still does so. Cultivate servanthood, serving will follow, and it will flow out of you as torrents of living water. Now, we're told enough about eternity in these chapters to know we will be truly and totally satisfied. We will be completed, we will be holy, we'll have free will that is nevertheless unable to sin, and of course, our environment will be absolutely perfect. We will therefore experience the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. What about now? Well, now you are able to presently sanctify the desires of your heart. We'll see that in verses six and seven. The revelation John was receiving had come to its end. He'd be left for a time on the island of Patmos, still a prisoner of Rome, probably mining salt as a very old man, maybe into his 90s. Back up a few years, according to Tertullian, John was banished to Patmos only after being plunged into boiling oil in Rome and suffering nothing from it. It's reported that all in the audience of the Colosseum were converted to Christianity upon witnessing this miracle. It was the first harvest crusade. Stadium evangelism was different back then. They had to, there was no message. There was just a life. Uh, it was a testimony to the Lord being boiled alive in oil. Hey, guys, still here. <laughs> love, love, love. I mean, it's, you know, we immediately assume this is a hyperbole and exaggerate. Oh, the whole Colosseum was saved. When did we ever see that? When's the last time you saw an apostle being boiled in oil and not getting crispy? It's been a while. 
And so John had an interesting life going on there. They tried to kill him and they said, hey, we can't kill this guy, but at least we can banish him to the salt mines. And then what happens out there? He has a revelation that we've been reading for centuries uh, that is phenomenal. But here's the way I look at it. One minute, John is seeing incredible visions of the future, having been transported there by the Holy Spirit. He's talking to angels. He sees the city he'll be living in, maybe even his own mansion. The next minute, he's looking back out over the ocean. He's a persecuted disciple with at least a couple more years left to suffer on the earth. How did he not fall into despair? How did he persevere? You probably would say that having seen his future and the satisfaction he would know there, it counteracted all the yucky stuff going on in his life. It gave him hope to finish well. You'd be right, and you'd also be telling yourself to look at your own future and the total satisfaction you will know there. It will counteract the things you must face on the earth on your way home. It will give you hope to finish well. Verse 6, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Our God is the God of the holy prophets. As you know, prophecy comprises over a fourth of the Bible. Fulfilled prophecies, and there are scores of them, they are the proof that all of God's word is faithful and true. Jesus sent his angel to the apostle John to show his servants things. This book reveals, it doesn't conceal. It is rendered into signs to clarify, never to confuse. All the people who are afraid of the book of the Revelation and who tell you how hard it is to read and impossible it is to understand, Jesus is telling you, I gave this to be understood and to reveal and to give you signs of the future. What you read about in the Revelation, it says must shortly take place. The events and their order must occur. You can't alter them. We've said this before, but once the tribulation starts, it is on until the end. There's no stopping it. Sometimes we think that we're all going to lay down our arms and denuke and hug people that we normally don't like and sing kumbaya and the world is going to come to that place and God's going to say, oh, all right, I don't have to destroy things now with the tribulation. And that, that is not going to happen. I don't want to be a doomsayer. I don't want to be accused of being negative. But the Bible says things are going to get worse and worse. And just take a minute, put your own philosophy on the shelf for a minute, and look at the world and tell me, is it getting better and better, or is it getting worse and worse? Well, I think it's getting worse and worse a lot faster than it ever has. And so once the tribulation starts, this must take place, and it'll happen in just the order that we said. Seven seals will be broken, seven trumpets will be blown, seven bowls will be poured out, and all of the events in between will take place. The word shortly means they are impending. From the standpoint of heaven, these events are always impending. We think they are more impending than ever because each week in our prophecy update, we show how the news and trends in the world are corroborating these old Bible prophecies. Ours is the generation that has seen so much come to pass that was previously unthinkable. If you're like me, you get up every day and you think, this can't go on very much longer. Now, we don't know. Uh, The rapture is imminent, but how much longer things are gonna go on, we don't know. But you look at it and you think, wow, 
Everything is falling into place, really. Not, we're not even making it up like some prophecy people used to do in the 70s and 80s and kind of big, take a reach at something. So, well, I think this is that. I mean, now it's just, it's overwhelming the amount of fulfilled prophecy and the stage setting for it. Verse seven, behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus is coming quickly. That doesn't mean soon. Soon gives you the idea it might have an interval of time. If, uh, you know, maybe we have lunch this afternoon and and, uh, you get there before I do, you think, well, I I bet Gene is gonna come soon. Well, what if I forget? Or what if you go to Figaro's and I go to In-N-Out? Or vice versa. So, you know, soon has, could be, a, could, soon could be an actually a long period of time. So soon is a bad word. I still say Jesus is coming soon. I slip into it. But what I really mean is that he's coming quickly. That means suddenly. So the events of this book are impending in that we see the signs leading up to them. The Lord's coming for the church is imminent. We might say then that the things we read about will happen soon, whereas the rapture will come suddenly and always before them. No book of scripture promises you'll be blessed as much as the revelation. You want a blessing, read this book. It should be the book you read the most because it has seven personal blessings. This is the sixth one. The final one is coming in verse 14. How do you keep the words of prophecy? I think it's by looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord. It's by believing his coming for the church is imminent. It's by looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you believe, really believe the Lord's coming is imminent and that he is away preparing your mansion to come for you and take you home, you will stay ready like a bride awaiting her groom. We talk about this a lot. Another way of saying that is you will sanctify the desires of your heart. You'll look in your heart, you'll see what it desires, and you'll set apart those desires as unto the Lord. Sanctify simply means set apart with the idea of being set apart for Jesus, for his sake. That means you'll subordinate your desires to his will for your life. It's not just that he might come back and catch you doing something you shouldn't be doing, like putting cream and sugar in coffee. I mean, come on, guys. I don't know. I had to try. You know, you parents... You don't like to catch your kid. You know, when, when you haven't heard your kids for a while, it's remarkably quiet. In the movies, that always means that a grizzly bear is about to eat you. But it's much worse when you have small children. You go in the room and they're, they've done unmentionable things in their room and uh, stuff. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's not just that. I mean, that's part of it. You don't want to be caught doing things you shouldn't be doing. But we should rather have the attitude, we want to be ready. We're excited to see the Lord. We don't want anyone or anything in our lives to interfere with the joy of that moment. We should be about the business of saying, hey, I, I really don't want to do that. I don't want to watch that. I don't want to be there. I don't want to do this because I, it, it just isn't sanctified. It isn't set apart for the Lord. Uh, it... it it may be even okay. It might be okay for you. That's fine. But I just, I want to just focus on the Lord. Now, I'm not saying you can't be excited and looking forward to some of the things on the earth, like having children and uh, watching them grow or being a grandparent or excelling in a chosen field of work. I am saying that what Paul said still stands for every Christian, not just for apostles, 
To be in heaven with Jesus is far better than to remain on the earth. Paul wasn't just tired of living. He said, look, this is the way we are made now. This is our DNA as Christians. We want to be in heaven. Whatever happened to heaven, it should be a constant thought that we have. Thinking about heaven, the hope that Jesus is coming any moment, sanctifies all your endeavors on the earth. Doing everything as unto the Lord gives everything in your life purpose and eternal meaning. How many of you remember the song, Heaven is a Wonderful Place? You know, remember that song? Let's do it. You ready? The first service, one guy said he remembered it and he refused to sing. But I don't care if you sing or not, but this is, this is a song. It's kind of, the sad thing is it's kind of a dirge. You're saying how, how excited you are to be in heaven, but it's like, you know, and stuff. But it's got, there's a line in it that repeats that I think is great. So it goes like this. Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. I want to go there. And then the girls sing. Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. Give yourself a hand. I want to go there. I want to go there. We should just have shirts made up that say, I want to go there. And, and you and I would know it. They'd be kind of like a secret society. It'd be like the, like the old ichthus, you know, which I, I never understood. I mean, really, are the Romans that stupid? They couldn't figure out that the, the Christian fish was the Christian fish. Gee, I wonder what that is. I don't know. This should be a theme song of yours as you journey homeward to the city whose builder and maker is God. And you should be able to say, honestly, I want to go there. Let's pray.